Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. Hey, what's going on, my marketing people? Welcome to another episode of the show. Today, joining me from Helicocktails is one of their co-founders, Eddie Simeon. Eddie, how you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me here. Man, I'm excited to chop it up. I know we talked a little bit off air about culture and how to set it and learning as your company's growing and going through you know, an exciting time. And I'm, I'm pumped to get into that. But before we do, I want you to you know, set the foundation for the listener, bring them in, tell them what's your story. I mean, Helicocktails, what is it? You know, and if you can give us that kind of five minute career journey to date, that'd be great. And then we'll hop in. Gladly. And thank you for asking. So Helicocktail Co. makes botanically inspired beverages and bar quality cocktail mixers. So we kind of find ourselves at the intersection of the better for you movement and alcohol or alcohol-adjacent cocktailing, which is a really interesting space to be in right now with everything that's happening in kind of the sober, curious, alcohol-free movements. But we've been in business for 12 years now. And in that decade plus, we've seen the cocktail space evolve a lot. So when we got our start in 2011, really the scene was about going to craft cocktail bars, you know, speakeasies. They were usually in the cities, more urban environments, usually downtown. And you could go get like a prohibition era craft cocktail there. And now the cocktail topic has grown so big that it even includes people that don't drink alcohol at all. So our approach has always been to create a celebratory, inclusive cocktail moments. And in doing so, we've developed a portfolio of ingredients for making cocktails, ranging from cocktail bitters to crack and pour cocktail mixers, now to sparkling drinks. And the purpose is to inspire confidence so that people can celebrate more authentically. We can reach people wherever they want to be along the entire cocktailing spectrum. We started off just as a hobby. We were a group of buddies who loved getting together and barbecuing and making things from scratch. We were working on some ice cream sandwich formulas, thinking about going pro making ice cream sandwiches. But we just kind of struck on cocktail bitters for a lot of reasons. Some of it was just dumb luck that we chose a product that happens to have infinite shelf life. But we thought it was really topical and we looked at other cocktail bitters options in the market and we just didn't love the ingredient lists. And so we started making our own out of all natural ingredients and had a lot of fun kind of sourcing, you know, herbs and spices and the right kind of grain alcohol from various places. And the hobby kind of grew from there. In 2015, we launched cocktail mixers because we kind of wanted to amplify the low velocity behind bitters, even though it's a fundamental part of cocktailing, you use very little in order to make a drink. And then a few years later, we became the preferred cocktail mixer of Delta Airlines. And following on that success, we started to bring in little amounts of outside capital just through angel rounds and always had our sights set on continuing that story of velocity by launching a daily use bitters beverage that we call bitters and soda. So it's been an amazing journey. You know, we still remain like the closest of friends, even though our relationships are like part brother, part business partner, you know, and with all that's been happening with the last couple of years, working fully remotely since the pandemic, I'm here in Southern California now. My business partner and, you know, best friend of 23 years is in Michigan. And our third co-founder, Joe Mari, lives in New York and um, has had some really interesting things happen in his career lately. So he rolled off the business as a full-time daily resource. He's still chairman of the company, but is now actually the principal of one of our 
strategic partners called Pronghorn. So there's a lot there. It's been a hell of a ride, but what started in a mason jar is now the only minority-led cocktail mixer brand distributed in all 50 states. I love that. It's like a couple friends together, get this, see up, solve your own problem first, get up on Delta Airlines. Now you're at this point working remotely and we were talking a little bit. You said you know the company is growing and you're at this point where you're hiring. So I'm interested, I guess, one, where does the company stand like headcount wise? Not as a, a vanity thing. I'm just more like, where, how many people are, do you have to manage um, yeah. right now? And is there a hiring target? We're pretty much at capacity for the year. We've had a very conservative approach to hiring. Um, we really like fractional resources, at least in the beginning. Fractionals, this new topic that is not new by any stretch of the imagination, but it's kind of like the opposite of hiring service providers. You know, so I head up our marketing. And so having uh, contractors or um, freelancers working for us is kind of like the antidote to paying retainers to agencies, you know. But right now we're at a headcount of six plus two full time co founders. So there's eight people on the team. And for 2023, we're pretty much capped just because we have very specific financial targets that we're trying to hit before we add additional headcount. I love it. It's an interesting part in your company, right? When you're going from you and just the other co founders, where at least in my own experience, when I had that, I had my co founders and we could like, show up raggedy to the office when before we were, you know, before we were remote, we'd like, whatever it was like, I'm showing up in track pants and a t-shirt because who cares? We're all just the co-founders. And, and then it, we hired our first person and it became, Oh, mm. we need to like be here before that staff member. We need to have things a little bit more professionalized. Right. How has that been for you? I guess like, has that been a big change now as you built a team when it comes to, you know, building culture, right? Things like, how are you going about that? Because beforehand, I'm sure a lot of it was unspoken, right? Between you and the co-founders. Has there been anything that you've found that's worked or that has really been a cornerstone of building culture in the company? So many things. Uh, you put it really well. We, you know, we're three guys <laughs> and not, we were three guys who were like buddies, you know, so kind of like this self-selected group of fellas. And so of course, in the early days, if there was a culture, it was just a reflection of how we like to hang. We all took a leap from our careers to go do this. And so like, you don't do that necessarily, or at least we didn't, to put on a suit and tie and go to work every morning. You know, we wanted it to feel relaxed, welcoming. But yeah, there is that, even though we were always driven and, you know, in order to make that leap and start your own company, it takes a certain degree of, I don't know, <laughs> call it whatever you want to call it, naivete. I've called it an entrepreneurial seizure, call it passion and drive, but it got to the point for sure where we wanted to recruit. You know, they say like as a founder, you want to identify your gaps and hire people who kind of fill those gaps, right? That's like what great leaders do is they build by assembling teams and they grow by assembling teams. It served us too to recruit for people who were different than us. And so like our first employee who worked with us for six years was a woman. And I just think that like was a really important part of the vibe to balance out this kind of three guys in a garage culture, you know? And uh, now we have a pretty even split um, female to male and some goals when it comes to hiring diversity for POCs, people of color on the executive level. But yeah, I, I, I think like, it's a great question because, you know, we everybody kind of 
in the very early stages of any business, especially I think in food and beverage, because it's such a kind of social convivial culture, it can feel really relaxed and casual. And you kind of come up with your own style for stepping into spaces that are a little bit more professional and formal. But as the company grows, you do have to start to have more structure, have more infrastructure, process. And what does that look like for you? And we're kind of being confronted with those questions right now. Yeah, it's that the whole, someone said it to me once they're like, professionalize your business. Like the club, getting out of the clubhouse and like professionalizing it. And that didn't mean it had to be you know, less fun or less engaging. And I actually found, it's funny, I thought that structure was going to be this thing that pushed people away because structure meant I was working at Chase Bank, you know? And I found it actually opposite that my staff wanted structure. They want like, they wanted to know what they needed to do on what times, like it gave that clearer path forward. And we said this before off air, it's like, if you don't, say what needs to be done, what the company mission is, where you're going, how you're going to do it, and what the company stands for. Everyone's open to interpret it what they think, and it'll just becomes, for lack of a better term, a clusterfuck, right? If you let the culture of your business go to seed, I find that it starts to become a reflection of the worst part of you, you know? Yep. Like, the bottom, the lowest common denominator of how you show up becomes the way other people begin to behave. So we started to implement these systems of accountability, and they're very collaborative. I think like the number one thing is like, you don't want to be too diminutive, too prescriptive with how you hand culture down, but you're right. Highly productive people want goals. And so accountability and culture for us in a lot of ways is about this goal setting process. So the way we do it at the company right now, which is um, filled in a lot of those voids when it comes to cultural leadership is first doing annual strategic planning. We really have one KPI for the entire business, and that's case depletions, right? So we do the due diligence. We calculate our forecasts for what we think is realistic based on certain assumptions. And then we have like a three-day or week-long process where we identify activities that will serve that goal over a three-year, one-year, and then 90-day period. So We start with global organizational goals that we want to achieve. And then you can start to map an individual's job description against accomplishing those goals and come up with individual KPIs, right? And I found that the people with the most experience, the people who are the highest achievers within any organization want something along the lines of a scorecard. They appreciate like a quarterly check-in with leadership to say, how am I doing against the things that we agreed are my job? And in the absence of all that, they won't be motivated. They won't show up to work feeling energized to get stuff done or happy knowing that they're not really moving the ball forward. Yeah. Or they start doing things that aren't part of their job, right? Like I always think about things like I played college football. So I always think the offense's job was to score a touchdown. Okay. That's our goal, right? Touchdown. Right. But the offensive lineman's job is not to run the ball in. Their thing is get the blocks, the receivers, catch the ball. Like, yeah. And the minute your receiver is trying to throw passes, the offense is going to break. And I, I think that a lot of that can actually, you know, that thinking can be applied to business too, to be like, oh, are people doing what they're supposed to to help advance, you know, the company's ball, so to speak, right? Yeah. And to get us closer to that goal. You're right. And, and I, I think this is also true about the three co-founders, me and my two business partners. When we can be collaborative when our unique professional skills can be interconnected in a way, we do our best work, right? Like we met the 
onboard services buying team for Delta Airlines at Fancy Food Show. They were just walking the floor. We didn't know anything about becoming a supplier to an airline, let alone a, one of the largest airlines. But because we like worked at it as a trio, you know, like there was a lot of late nights when we were doing proposals for Delta, we figured it out, you know, and then, you know, lo and behold, we won that piece of business. What the process that we've put, you know, laid in, in place within the company allows us to do is allow for like similar behavior, as you described, the different positions in a football squad for there to be interdepartmental collaboration. So like everyone says there should be very little delight between sales and marketing. What does that really mean? Or ops and marketing, right? Like how do those two teams interface? And I think if you have kind of like a North Star set of goals that we know serves the business globally, and every division asks the question, what's my responsibility for moving those objectives forward? You can start to realize your role in relation to other people's role and amplify each other's productivity. I love that. Yeah. And it's, I love the having one grand, like one major KPI, right? I think it's sometimes we get in, you know, we work with organizations and I'm like, okay, what's the goal? And then there's 27 different goals, right? One is page traffic. And I'm like, well, why do you want more page traffic? Well, we want more leads, but why do we want more leads? To get more sales. Okay, so the goal is more sales. Like, let's just cut through. (laughs) 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 The goal is not web traffic. Let's let's like like, let's let's actually boil this down, right? No, I I love that idea. You know, bringing that forward. Is there anything y'all are like implementing with regards to? I know it's really popular to do like entrepreneur OS or clockwork or I mean, I'm like doing story brand training right now. Just we have our own flavor of the OS. It's what it is, okay. you know, so this idea of um, three year, one year, 90 day goal setting is like the foundation of EOS. One like unique spin that we put on it to kind of sprinkle some hella flavor on top of EOS was we scheduled out bi-weekly all hands meetings for the entire year. So EOS has this agenda format called level 10 and every other all hands meeting, we hold a, a level 10 agenda and then every other other all hands meeting, one of the company teams leads the agenda. So this week, marketing will lead the agenda. And then we'll have kind of this like all, level 10 all hands meeting. And then the following meeting, operations will lead the agenda. And it's cool because you don't have to necessarily tell people like what you're working on this week. You can just explain to people what operations means to you, right? Like we're trying to evolve from being like a, a, a one warehouse distribution team to like a a coastal distribution network. So we are standing up a warehouse on the East Coast and West Coast. And so just breaking down for the rest of the organization, the the unit economics, the level of effort and the logistics behind doing all that is illuminating for people on the marketing team and helps us understand like, well, why shouldn't we run a promotion at 30% off during Father's Day? <laughs> and if you can kind of answer that question for yourself, if you understand the value chain provided by the operations team. That information is so, so pivotal. And I say that this is funny that you say this because I'm like having flashbacks and PTSD maybe, but we were working with a client and it was same thing, beverage company. And we're like, oh, let's do the shipping one year. And then the operator informs us a year in that we're losing money on cases shipped to certain states. And I went, Mm. why wasn't this addressed at the top? We were told this was, we got a blank. We asked for the margin and we got a blanket response for the country. Yep. So I was like, oh, there's shipping. 
I assumed that there was coastal shipping in place and, you know, different regional center. No, it was all coming out of the Midwest and little things to go, oh, losing money on any shipment to California. Well, then why is it even in the marketing plan to do that? Like right. it was one of those like, right. you know, but I, I we didn't know until too late and it's like, oh, you're burning money to get liquid to lips out here, but it's not yep. creating a profitable, you know, customer. So it's yeah. like that information. I love that of like giving operations that, or whatever department, that platform yeah. to educate the rest of the company can avoid little things, little or big things like that, right? That you see come through. And what you had just said about this appetite for growth is central to everything in CPG right now, right? I think that's really tapping into how the economic climate or the pending economic climate is impacting high-level business decisions for organizations large and small. What's your appetite for growth? At what cost are you willing to grow? You know, institutional dollars have finally tapped into this topic of profitable growth. And it's not necessarily an oxymoron. It just means like you don't see that hockey stick all the time. Like 15% year over year growth is a good thing. And we're proud to say that as a business that's, you know, been around for more than 10 years, but only closed a series A of funding within the past six months, if we weren't profitable quarter over quarter, the first thing to go would have been salaries, right? And so we had to act like a cash flow business. We had to act with a significant amount of discipline when it comes to profitability. And it changes the product. It changes the value proposition. Our products have always been designed to be on the more expensive premium end of the mixer cabinet for that specific purpose. And it's never been growth at all costs. We played that game a little bit last year at the perfectly wrong time it, when customer <laughs> acquisition and beverage went from like, you know, $4 to $44. And, yep. you know, Zuckerberg took our lunch money there. And so in 2023, it's totally different. You know, we have uh, pathways for people to discover the brand on the internet, but purchase the product in retail. And for brands at our stage, that's like the holy grail right now. It's the fundamentals, right? Which is what you're saying. When you are doing limited cash raise, you have to rely on business fundamentals, the profitability mm -hmm. and profitable growth. And it gives you a tool set where if there ever is a cash injection, there's a real business model. So many founders from 2010 to now, particularly, and I would say like CPG is kind of having its like SaaS moment a little bit the last five years. Like I was in software as a service marketing at first mm -hmm. and the amount of money that was lit on fire because like profitability was like Voldemort. You just didn't say that word. And right. it right. is like, we're shying away from this fundamental part of it. And I go, what the hell? This is crazy. You know? So now I, having that mindset, that scrappiness, whatever you want to call it, business yeah. fundamentals, I call it, um, mm -hmm. it gives you the, the tool set to like, if cash is injected, there's a model, there's a way to do things. It's predictable. Right. We're not just yeah. going to like, splash cash on something and cross our fingers, which was CPG was in a weird one there in like 2021. It was mm -hmm. like a, it's like a, a, a pissing contest to who could have the nicest Instagram. Like it yeah. was crazy. And I don't think it actually tied into that, like driving velocity at, on, on retail, you know, I can't be super analytical about what that all was, but I think like in broad strokes, you know, our generation, I'll say, you know, we're responsible for all this. There was a long period of time where we were living this millennial lifestyle on a discount because mm -hmm. of all the venture capital in the market. So we were getting Lyft and Uber rides across town. We were having our groceries delivered, you know, um, and all that stuff was dollar for dollar a lot cheaper than the actual cost of the service. 
And then there's this crazy correction and people saw this great hope and opportunity in direct, and I'm talking about CPG only now, in direct-to-consumer grocery. And it worked for 12 months or 18 months. And so like digital agencies started cropping up all over the place, calling them like um, performance marketers. You know, remember when it used to be called media buying? Yep. And then they started <laughs> calling it performance marketing. <laughs> you know, like when CAC was achievable, CAC was like something along the lines of the cost of your first sale. And yes, it was okay for your first sale to be break even because the cost to retain that customer was still low. There was like this bubble in that like discounted advertising dollars, basically. So it's kind of like this attitude of running your business on a discount. And then that just completely evaporated. And so when we saw this, started to see the, see the, um, the boutique banks like ClearBank or Wayflyer, you know, everybody that was basically funding your direct consumer CPG business on a uh, shopping cart transaction basis, when they started to disappear, I saw like that was the writing on the wall. I was like, something very bad is about to happen in capital, you know, and then we saw Silicon Valley Bank just kind of disappear overnight. And it's very difficult for businesses to receive lines of credit now. You know, we've been shopping for a line of credit so that we don't have to spend down on the cash that we received from the Series A for like a year, you know, and and that's back to business fundamentals. We're just not willing to accept the 25% interest rate that you would if you went with debt now. It is interesting. You talk about like the millennial, like we were able to get everything at a discount from funding for our companies, but also just thinking about the consumer behavior of willingness to, you know, spend $10 to DoorDash and ice cream to yourself. And, but you can do that when you're employed at Netflix making 200 K and then it's like every company starts the train of layoffs. I think I saw like Amazon packages in general for Q1 were down 5%. And it's like, Oh, right. People just aren't spending as much. So it just makes sense to me that we're kind of having this moment of like clarity almost where everyone like has to. It is a moment of clarity. You're right. Get real, you know? That. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just glad that this moment isn't the same moment where aluminum can costs were so dire. Because remember when like the world ran out of aluminum for a second? Yeah. Uh, that was that was a real risk for our business, you know, and so I'm glad that there, you know, there's a silver lining to everything. And so even though the supply chain is still very difficult right now, that is at least eased up a little bit when it comes to lead times. But yeah, I think you're right. Customer, the people are holding on to their money. The people who are making, who are like the largest generation right now remembers the 2008 financial crisis, right? I can't wait to read the history books about what this time in society like is it's going to be as, wild as it's going to be wild and it's going to be wild to see you know even 10 years from now to be like whoa that was yeah that was a the wild wild west of just funding yeah. and like these companies and subsidized taxi rides essentially and like uber could never could never ipo because they were just subsidizing car like it like all yeah. of this like wild stuff that was going on and yeah it'll be interesting to see i'm with you too like i'm yeah. 35 so seeing 2008 as a young adult, but then now being like, okay. You were in the job market. Like you were out of college, right? Like it was like- It's different, but reminiscent of like, oh, there's fear. There's It's not just cherries and roses where I feel like the last five years was- It's very different. Oh, there wasn't cash. There wasn't capital back then. You know, now there's like a lot of capital, just it's not moving around very much. Yeah. We, uh, 
in order to kind of respond to all this, just to come back to the business a little bit, we've really pivoted from having an always on approach to customer acquisition and growth to being hyper-focused on key moments throughout the year. And I think this is what Mm. Uh, smarter brands have done for a long time and earlier stage brands are getting hip to is like identifying those price reduction periods where you're partnering with your distributors or um, key moments throughout the year that align with your brand ethos and only investing your dollars in those moments of time you know so of course it requires some creativity to like you know what do you talk about in april or august or september right before the busy season so you kind of have to have this evergreen foundation of content to focus in and help to tell your story but you know we are really hyper focused on uh dry january the uh, heritage months like black history month and hispanic heritage month we're doing a campaign for summer and then of course holiday is the big drinking season and so i think we're like kind of bringing it all full circle and talking about how these the volatility in the market and the shift in consumer appetites for spending against CPG has impacted our decision-making process. It's pushed us to be more targeted. And um, it's so far, it seems to be going pretty well. I like that. And that comes back to when you do those all hands, where if you can come from the leadership side or the marketing side and say, here's our plan, we're going to tie ourselves to these yep. events, your seasons or holidays. And then people go, okay, cool. I know why we're doing yeah, price reductions in November around Thanksgiving. Got it. Like, right. I don't have to, you know, and that makes sense. So everyone gets aligned. Eddie, this has been awesome, man. Before I let you go, let people know, one, where they can find Hello Cocktails, and then two, where they should connect with you online. Oh, fantastic. I'll do the second one first. Please, we're on all the social media stuff. So on Instagram, it's at Hella Cocktail Co. All one word, no spaces, no dots. Hella Cocktail Co., H-E-L-L-A, Cocktail C-O. You can always just Google search Hella Cocktail Co. and you'll find all of our stuff. Please look for our product nationally in Whole Foods. We have two SKUs approved in Whole Foods. It's kind of in the middle of the store with the sparkling mixers. Our bitters and soda is a phenomenal product. Both of the SKUs we have in Whole Foods are zero sugar. But for the complete set of everything we make, you can go to Total Wine & More. So Total Wine & More carries... Um, all of our cocktail bitters, all of our mixers, and all three flavors of bitters and soda. And of course, if you aren't near either of those retailers, you can always purchase on Amazon. Awesome. All right, man. Thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Jordan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Beautiful. And if you want to go check out any of those links that were mentioned, we will throw those in the show notes. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Shelton, and I'll catch you next time. 